There we go. Okay, glad to be with you today. Thank you, Bill. You actually just teed up one of the verses I was going to start with. So that's it's a good place to start. Uh, Jerry asked me to teach this week. He told me Daryl taught last week, and I talked to Daryl for about five minutes because he was out, I was out, and I said, what did you teach on? He said, well, the Ten Commandments. I said, okay, well, I was going to teach on the Ten Commandments. So I don't know what Daryl said. You may get a replay of some things. Never hurts us. I'm going to look at the law as the Ten Commandments a little bit more today. Uh, That's where we are in Exodus. And I want to start where Bill was just, that Christ is preeminent. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And the preeminence of the Lord is that He is the Lord. If there is a Creator who made everything... And keeps everything. Verse in Colossians tells us very clearly that, that as the deists thought of that God wound up the clock and then stepped away is false. If God decided to let go, we're gone. And that's to eternity. But he has already told us that he will not. We are promised an eternity uh, with him as believers, as his children. Because he is preeminent, we can trust in that. We can trust that there is nothing that's going to threaten that. Not even the Lord, because He's true to His promises. And one of the things He gives us here in Exodus is promises of the Ten Commandments. Some of these are promises, some of these are promises of curses. But what are the Ten Commandments? When we talk about the law, there's several things, and again, I'm probably covering several things, Daryl talked about. We have a moral law, we have ceremonial law in in the Bible, in the Old Testament, we have moral law, we have ceremonial law, and we sometimes we take everything and we say, well, it's the moral law and the ceremonial law. Well, the ceremonial law is not just the ceremonial law. There's also a civil law. A lot of the things that we find in Deuteronomy, that we find in the Old Testament, are laws for the governing of the nation of Israel. It is their constitution. It is their codes. Some of those are ceremonial. Some of them are about cleanliness. They all point back to the moral law. But the moral law is the Ten Commandments. And everything of the moral law is contained in the Ten Commandments. And the written Ten Commandments, written by the hand of God, only restate the moral law that's written in our hearts. That's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible teaches. But the problem is not the law. What is it? our hearts. If there's a law written on our broken hearts, we have a really hard time understanding that law by our own sinfulness. You can't just say, well, I was born broken, so how can you blame me for, well, you've sinned. We all choose to do that. We have moral law, which is the Ten Commandments contain. We have a civil law and ceremonial law of Israel. So when we talk about law, the Bible talks about law throughout the New Testament Sometimes we look at the law and we think, well, there's a lot about the law in the New Testament. It sounds like the law is a bad thing. We'll get into some of those verses. Isn't grace better? Isn't Jesus better than the law? Well, in some ways, because of our sinfulness, yes. But the law stands, and the law is perfect. And the law reflects our perfect God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit, and who holds all things together, and who is 
preeminent. There is a word called, uh, for those who, and it's very, I think it's even more common now than probably any time in history, but there's a word, antinomianism. Who's ever heard this big fancy word? This means anti-law. And there's a lot of teaching, there always has been, there has from the beginning of the church, there have been many who would be classified as antinomials, antinomious, ominous, uh, whatever. Uh, they are against the law. They're saying if you're, and, and some of them come from a good place because what we find ourselves in is between being anti-law or legalists. We have a law and our nature, our sinful nature, is to always go too far. God gave us ten commandments, so what do we come up with? A thousand more. Are any of those right? Every single one is wrong. Every single one of them is wrong if they're not the Ten Commandments. Because God gave us these ten. We, so we tend to either become legalists or we become antinomian. We, became, we become anti-law. So when we come here to the, to the law, to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, let's go ahead and turn there. We kind of are faced with some questions. So I've kind of given you Again, I'm not sure. Daryl said he covered each of the commandments. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to try to give you an intro the week after he covered the material that I'm introducing. That's a little backwards, but stay with me here. Let's read quickly the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation, to those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Verse 12, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. 13, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So there we have the Ten Commandments, the law. What is the law? Here's a few things the law is. It is the standard for perfect righteousness. What the law has presented to us here is that if you fulfill this perfectly, that you are perfectly righteous. It starts by teaching us that we are to revere God. And it shows us what this reverence entails. That revering God 
requires us to do and not do certain things. The law is complete, nothing to be added to it. There's no additional form, no additional good works that we must come up with. It's all here in these ten. And that doesn't mean we can't infer and expound upon what that means and what the application is. And we see that immediately after this in Exodus and in Deuteronomy and in the New Testament when the Lord does not create new law but makes clearer what has been covered by years of human works, of human commands. The law claims our total obedience. And by total, I mean not that we just do everything to follow the law. And I'm saying the law is written here. We've talked a little bit about what grace means as Christ comes in the fulfillment of the law. But the law, as it reads, it demands total obedience. Not just doing everything, but doing it from outward all the way to the heart. So, if I work for somebody who says, you must be here at 8 o'clock to 5 o'clock, and I do that, but I come begrudgingly with a smile, my employer has, doesn't know about that, doesn't need to know about that. I've fulfilled the requirement. I've come during the work hours. But if God says show up at 8 and at 5, and I'm a little mad that he called me at 8, God knows. He saw the heart. He says, you're here, but you're not. And you've sinned. Total obedience to the core. Inward, spiritual decisions, thoughts, our desires. The law speaks to our body and soul. The Ten Commandments reflect the lawgiver. The law reflects the lawgiver. It shows the character of God. It shows the character of the Lord. It shows us part of His nature. I would not say that we can look at the law and see the complete nature of God, nor should we. God's given us much more revelation than that. But everything in the law is part of the Lord's nature. It does not go against His nature. The Lord knows our hearts in um, these things that we do. We do them before Him. A lot of times we, we keep the law in front of others, in front of our spouse, our kids. We ask the kids to keep the law in front of us. But all of us are always keeping the law before the face of God. He knows our hearts. We do them or we don't do them before the face of God. And each command is given for a purpose. There's a purpose behind each one of these commands. They seem simple. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. Boom, boom, boom. It's pretty easy. Don't murder, steal, commit adultery, or lie. We could could shorten these down a lot. But actually, they're given for a purpose. So it helps us to understand the purpose. And it helps us to understand that when things are prohibited, such as murder, or adultery, or lying... It's not just a prohibition. It's not just a do not, don't do this. That's the simple command. When your kids are little, you give them simple commands. You say, don't touch that. Someday you explain to them, because it's very hot and it will burn your flesh. And someday, someday you say, you keep it about four or five or else you get the pot too hot. And someday you come home and your kids have cooked a meal and you're kind of terrified because you, you did all that. And then someday you're like, why didn't you cook that for me? You know, they learn, they grow. Well, the law is given to us in a simple form, but it, we can infer that when it says to not do something, 
there is a requirement that we do something. And Jesus makes this clear. The law makes this clear in Deuteronomy throughout the Old Testament. But Jesus makes it very clear. Think of the parable of the Good Samaritan. When he talks about the priest, when he talks about those who pass the man who is wounded on the side of the road, he doesn't just say the, the message, and it's very clear at the end of the story, is that they did wrong by not helping. It was not a neutral action to just not help. To not kill is to obey the command to not murder. So if I think, I want to kill that person, well, I better not. But actually that desire in my heart, Jesus says, if you're angry, you're guilty of murder. He says, if you call somebody a fool, you've earned hellfire. That's a pretty, Jesus gives some pretty uh, far out applications of this law. But they fall within the understanding of it, and they always were. It was not a new understanding. When we find a purpose, we see that there's more to it. So back to, thou sh- you know, should not murder. If it is within our power to help somebody, and we choose not to, we are participating in their hurt. The Bible is clear on that. Good Samaritan makes that very clear. But we often just think, well, I've never murdered anybody, and I don't hate anybody that much. I got over it. No, we break the law. We should do everything in our power. When we, not, when we are told not to covet, we're also told to be generous. Because if we can be generous with the things we have, that shows that our heart does not desire the things we don't have in an unhealthy and in a sinful way. Uh, the civil law that comes and Jesus... He refers to, he he makes very very many examples of this. So the aim of the law is a perfect and righteous life. But sinful men find it impossible to achieve. So I'll just remind you that it's clear. You guys know this. The law gives us the route to a perfectly righteous life. And we cannot accomplish it. We're given a law that we cannot accomplish. Is that a fault within the law? Absolutely not. If it is, then the character of God displayed in there has a fault in it, and it does not. The fault is in us. Our sinful heart is impossible. Matthew 19, 26, the rich young ruler says, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus, you remember the story, he says, you sell everything you have. Where is that in the law? Well, for this rich young ruler to not covet, perhaps to help people that were in need. He needed to sell some things. And Jesus tells him that, and he walks away. Very sad. And then the disciples say, explain to us what just happened, Jesus, because that seems impossible to be saved. Who can do this? And Jesus says, you're right. With man, it is impossible. It is impossible for us to keep the law perfectly. But with Jesus, with God, all things are possible. That's what Jesus says. So as we get to the law, I think Daryl talked about this. We look at the law. Um, you can look at the law as it's often called historically two tables of the law. There is the law that is about our relationship immediately with God, and there's the commandments that deal with our relationship with others. Now, they are tied together. If we do not understand, if we do not honor God, is the first three or four, there's debate if you really want to debate these things. Some people say the first three or the first table or the first four. 
I think it's the first four, are about our relationship with God. If we are unable to do that, then none of this matters because we do it out of a works righteousness. We're seeking to do these things if we do them at all as far as the later commandments. The two tables of the law. The first table is relationship to God, love for God, and without love for God, none of the commandments can be kept. They cannot be kept perfectly. There are good people out there that fulfill a lot of these commandments without knowledge of God, but they break the first ones because they do not honor God as the sovereign, as the most preeminent, as Bill read to us. The second table, relationships to others, love for neighbor, follows our love for God. The slides, Matthew 22. This is back to the Jesus explaining the law. They, they test him saying, teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. Now, these two statements that Jesus makes are considered the first table, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. And the second table, love your neighbor as yourself. In today's world, it is getting really hard for people to understand that second line because the idea of loving yourself is so odd and corrupted in the way we our society at least, thinks. So some people think, well, I hate myself, so that means, shouldn't I just hate other people? Well, no. That, that demonstrates the sickness of our flesh and our minds. All sins merit condemnation. There's no little ones. They all fail. Perfect righteousness to be obtained means no sins. So here we have the law. It's curses and it's promises. It instructs us in perfect righteousness. It gives us promises to keep, to be fully righteous in God's sight and have eternal life. Can we fulfill it? Can anyone? No. Can the law save us? Because of ourselves, no. But the promise of the law is true. If we could keep it, be perfectly righteous, we'd have eternal life. I want to read uh, what John Calvin wrote. He, Perhaps someone will ask if God delights to cheat us. For it does seem like mockery to reveal to man the hope of happiness and to invite and urge him to attain it, to promise that it has been prepared for him, and yet to close the door to it. My answer is that the law's promises were not given in vain, but that they are conditional and can only be fulfilled for those who have accomplished all righteousness, a righteousness not to be found among men. Once we understand that they, that is the promises, can do nothing for us unless God in his goodness freely receives us apart from our works. And once we have, by faith, embraced his goodness, which he offers us in the gospel, these same promises, conditional as they are, are not vain. For then the Lord freely gives us all things, to the point where his kindness even contrives not to refuse our imperfect obedience, but by pardoning and forgiving what we lack, accepts it as good and complete. And accordingly, he bestows on us the fruit of the lawful promises as if the condition attached to them had been fulfilled. That's wordy. Probably should pass that out so you can diagram the sentences. But that's justification. That's what God has done for us in Christ who have faith in him. 
I've, I've given you all these things about the law, and I've tried to restate over and over that we can't meet them because of our sinfulness. And God says, that's right. Christ met them, and his righteousness earned through the law and inherent in him because the law reflects God's nature, I'm putting on you. Even though you're not completing the law, but now I count you righteous in the law. And he does so in a way that we don't earn at all our righteousness by keeping the law. But we have a righteousness of a law that is kept, and we are able now to keep the law. At least better, and eventually perfectly. That is sanctification. Now I'm going to switch halves here. It's traditionally in theology, in church history, for the Christian, we look at the law and sometimes we struggle. What is the purpose? The law seems to condemn. Yet the law is called perfect. Theologians throughout time have called this the three uses of the law, that there are three uses of the law. I'll give you the simple word for each and then explain each. The law is a mirror, the law is a curb, and the law is a guide or a light. The law is a mirror. The first function of the law is to convince us of our sin. The law reveals the righteousness of God, and as a mirror reveals our own unrighteousness, our sinfulness, our shortcomings. It brings conviction and condemnation. The law gives knowledge of sin. Let's talk about how Paul refers to this, Romans 3, 19 through 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In Romans 4.15, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Romans 5, 12 through 13, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So Paul is making this point, he makes it throughout other, other letters, but he's making it very strongly in Romans, that the law brings sin because though we are sinning, Without a law, we don't know we're sinning. But the law makes very clear that we sin. It's Romans 7, 7 through 13. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. I'm going to stop there. Paul is making a point about the law. He's saying, because the law shows me that my sin is sin... It's a killer law, and not killer in the good way, like young people say. It, it kills us because it reveals the sin. So, yes, Paul often looks at the law and says, the law is death because it points to me that I'm dead and I'm guilty of the sin that it asked me not to do, demands that I not do. Verse 10, continuing, 
The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. So what Paul is saying, these ten commandments, Moses, following the giving of the law, says, if you will follow these, you will live long. You will have eternal life. So what Paul says is here, the very commandment that promised life, all the commandments of the law, proved to be death to me. For sin, this is the reason why, 11, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, that is the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So the law is working to reveal to us that we sin. And then what the law does is it makes us sin even more because we can't meet it. And without a love for the Lord and a desire to follow His righteous law, we're angry at God for putting these rules on us. Think again of our kids or when we were kids. and You're given a rule that you don't like. It's the first thing you feel. That's not fair. That person is not the doing right. That my parent that I don't like right now. It makes us have even more sin. If we could truly and wholly obey the law, whole, like entirely obey it, if we would willfully, our will, if our free will, we'll call it that, could only be governed by the law, it wouldn't be free then, would it? It would be enough to save us, but we can't. Nobody has, nobody ever will. So Paul is saying the law was given for our salvation, but it is the cause of our sin and death because our nature is opposed to it. It's not that the law, something inherent in the law fails. It is inherent in humanity since the fall. So the law shows us also our need for pardon and the danger of damnation in order to lead us to repentance and faith in Christ. Galatians 3.19 says this. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. The law has a purpose because we are sinners. We get a law. The law is like a mirror. We see in it our weaknesses, the evil that comes from our sin and our weaknesses and the curse that we earn from our sin and our weaknesses. Without the law, we fail to see this rightly. And we have to look deeply we're really good at ignoring surface imperfections. We talk about a mirror. Now, when Paul's talking about a mirror, the mirror in your house is probably infinitely better than anybody's mirror was 2,000 years ago. They had mirrors. They'd polish up some metal. They even knew how to put metal on the back of glass. But up until a century ago, glass was wavy. And the metal on the back flakes off. And now we love to do that. We even do that to new mirrors because we like the antique mirror look. But mirrors were rough. We never saw clearly in a mirror. So that example is used often in the Bible to say, you know, we see as if looking through a mirror, not perfectly. And you could, get, you could say, well, it's also backwards. The, the point is, is that the mirror is easy for us to ignore our imperfections. We look at the law and we, look, we can see other people's imperfections, but we tend to ignore ours. We're actually terrible at really peering into our hearts, but God sees them. 
we're, we can't see them because our own hearts are broken. Our own eyes don't work right. Our spiritual eyes don't work right. But the law is preparing us as it reveals sin to accept grace. That's the good thing here. Let me go for the good. Because God knows we can't complete it, He has prepared His mercy and He has come to our aid. And this should make us more grateful for the mercy of God. When we see condemnation in the law, in the believer, it should grow into thankfulness and gratefulness at the mercy of God and the blessings. That God would even bless us as we broke the law before we knew him. He blessed us with life and many things. Uh, Old church father Augustine, he said, The usefulness of the law is that it convinces man of his weakness and compels him to seek the medicine of grace, which is in Christ. When we know our depth of our sin, we know where we can get the medicine, we see Christ. So the, second, the first function of the law, again, is to reveal sin. The second function of the law is to restrain evil. And I should say restrain evil men. The law is to us. It's not to the devil. The devil breaks it all. But the devil did that long before the law was written down. It restrains evil men. It may not change the hearts of evil men, but it does restrain them. It can inhibit some from evil. It does this by bringing fear of punishment. We look at the law. Uh, how, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but how many of us before we were saved knew the Ten Commandments and knew what was right and wrong? And a lot of times we didn't do the wrong stuff because we didn't want the punishment. Now, our parents, hopefully, and our government, hopefully, less and less so, reflects the law. That's what God designed governments to do. He desires governments to do. And when they are doing so, we must obey them. Because when the civil law matches the moral law, it is a binding of sinful men that we who are growing in righteousness could have some safety to do that in this evil world. If the Lord took off the restraint of the, the law on lost people, this world would unwind so fast. And it has done a lot of it anyway. But because there's no inward heart change, you, you can obey a law. I cannot murder, but if my heart has not changed, I'm still a murderer inside. I'm still a liar inside, even though I, I make sure and not tell any lies. I don't have an honest fear of the Lord. I just fear what the Lord may do to me or what his magistrates, what the government may do to me, what my parents may do to me. It's a forced righteousness, forced on people, and God is at work, but they're not observed. They don't recognize that they do these things before the face of God. This is a mercy, though, of God. It's a mercy on the earth, it is a mercy on the lost, and it's a mercy on the church, that he curbs the sin of humanity with the law. He constrains it. We're not all able to do what we would want to do. If we did, it'd be chaos. And we see that bubble up from time to time. It's always simmering. Um, and it, there will be a time when the restraints will be loosed. God uses the law to protect the righteous. Romans 13. I think you have that up there. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. 
Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So when we do look at the law and we look at the commandment to honor our father and mother, there's several aspects of that command, but one reason we're called to, so what's the purpose behind the law? We're to honor the authority in our lives, whether that be our parents, which have authority in our lives, or government. Now, if our parents are asking us to do things against God's law, we do not honor them by doing that because we do not honor God. And our first commandments are that we honor God. We can't honor our parents if we're not honoring God. So if your parent is asking you to sin, if the government is asking you to sin, you can't sin against God and do right by, by following what the government or parent does if it's not righteous. It's complicated when we think of that. We look at this in Romans and we think, well, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? It's that we never go against God's will, and God's will is revealed in these commandments. Also in this second use of the law, for believers, the law is like preschool. We learn our shapes. We learn our colors. We learn our way around the law, even though we're not believers. Before we're believers, we're not believers. We don't have the Spirit to help us. We don't understand the reasons. But when we come to faith, we're already acquainted with it. Now, that's not the case for everyone. And the Spirit is doing the greater work in the believer to help them obey. Everything we do when we we know Christ is Spirit-enabled and should be done in love, not just for works. But take this too far and you get to legalism, which is what the Jews did. The Jews took this and said, well, we will curb everything. And they made thousands of laws that were not part of the law and became legalists. The third function of the law, and probably the greatest function for the believer, is it encourages believers in obedience. The law is a guide to save people to do good. And God has called us to good works. He created these works for us. He planned them for us. And the law is a guide in how to do them. The law tells us what pleases God, what pleases our Heavenly Father. It is the principal function for the believer. It gives us understanding of God's will. We'll say, what's the will of God? Well, there are things that God has willed and planned that we don't know and we won't know. But what we do know is what he said in the Ten Commandments. He says, my will, do these things. We see this played out in the Psalms. So I think months back, I taught on a contrast we see. We think we see a contrast. It's not there between Paul saying the law does this and the law brings sin, but the psalmist only seems to talk of the law in the greatest words. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. In Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The law, he's talking about the law. 
Now, you debate, see, he's talking about the whole first five books, probably. Joshua contained in that is these Ten Commandments. They have not been done away with. The Christian is free from the law as a system of salvation. Numerous verses I can point you to, but we're running out of time. And you know that. But we are under the law of Christ as a rule of life. We're not saved by the law, the keeping of the law, but we are saved to keep and to do good works. It urges us to perfection, the law does. It calls us. It shows us the goal and the aim of our life. Uh, Calvin said, Our whole life is like a race. When we reach its end, the Lord will bless us by letting us reach the goal we presently pursue, even though we are still a long way off. How many people in here have run marathons? There's one. Yeah, several. And my wife has run some. If I joined in with you all, I don't think I'd physically make the finish line unless I've just like skipped, which some people do. You know, it's many blocks and kind of comes back. I've just kind of sit here for a couple hours and come back. Nobody finishes this race perfectly. But what God says at the end is, you're the victor. Because Christ is victorious. We get the prize. Even though we're still a long way from there, we already have earned the prize. You see these signs in people's yards, they're super obnoxious. In this family, we, well, there's some good ones, I should say. Might have on your wall in your house. But you see the ones in your yard are like, well, we're for this liberal thing and this crazy thing. And we're. Our family code includes, I'm not saying the Reed family, but it should for all of us. Our family as believers should include these Ten Commandments that we honor the Lord, that we don't worship idols, that we don't worship graven images, even of the Lord, because He's invisible. So don't create something that He's not. That we honor our parents and people in authority. That we don't murder, that we don't hate, that we don't lust, that we don't commit adultery. This is our family code. This is how Christians behave. They should. St. Christ sums this up when he says, His disciples must be taught to do all that he had commanded. And that obedience to his commands will prove the reality of our love for him. Let's pray and we'll go. Father God, thank you this morning we can come together again. I thank you for these people. I thank you for loving us, for sending your son to die for us, for sending the gospel to us, for opening our hearts to your word and for saving us, Lord. Help us to grow in good works, grow in love for one another and for neighbor. Lord, help us to worship you now as we, as we go to sing, to open your word, to worship you through your word. Lord, we do all of this through your grace and your mercy, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.